0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratz. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Nevogradic, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 21st, 2015. In our general news section today, I'll talk about the progress lawmakers have made in negotiating a fiscal year 2016 budget and when we can expect a final agreement. In our affordable housing section, I'll share news about a hearing that was held by the House Committee on Financial Services last week and what witnesses had to say about the low-income housing tax credit. Then, I'll address a question sent in by one of our listeners on how HUD views equity bridge loans that come from outside of the operating partnership. After that, I'll talk about a new bond program in California that could help build more affordable housing across the state. In new market tax credit news, I'll have a co-sponsor update on bills that would make the new market tax credit a permanent part of the tax code. Then. In our Historic Tax Credit section, I'll talk about a court ruling in Rhode Island that underscores the importance of placed-in-service dates. Finally, we'll close out this week's podcast with our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section. I'll share the 2015 reference rates and inflation adjustment factors for the production tax credit. I'll end with news about state Renewable Energy Tax Credit bills in two states, New Mexico and North Carolina. If you're ready, let's get started. In this week's General News section, lawmakers in Washington have taken the next steps to negotiating a joint budget. I mentioned in previous podcasts that April 15th was the legal deadline for the House and Senate to agree on a budget. As many experts predicted, Congress once again missed that deadline. But I do think we can expect an agreement by the end of the month. Last week, House Speaker John Boehner appointed members of a budget conference committee. The House appointees include Budget Committee Chairman Tom Price and Vice Chairman Todd Rokita. The three other Republican conferees are Budget Committee members Maria Diaz-Blart, Diane Black and John Molinar. It's worth noting that Representatives Price and Black are also members of the Tax-Writing House Ways and Means Committee. Meanwhile, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi named three Democrats to the committee. Budget Committee Ranking Member Chris Van Hollen, Gwen Moore, and John Yarmuth. However, the outnumbered Democrats will probably have little say on what's included in the final package. Over on the Senate side, the conference features all 22 members of the Senate Budget Committee. All in all, there will be 12 Republican Senators, 9 Democrats, and 1 Independent. If the House and Senate can agree on a conference report, it'll go back to both chambers for passage. Well, conferees met for the first time yesterday, Monday. As expected, Republicans called for further shrinkage of the annual deficit and they spoke out against Obamacare. In response, Democrats were critical of the GOP's proposed cuts to many domestic programs and they questioned how Republicans would replace Obamacare. I'll have more updates for you as they become available, so follow me on Twitter. My handle is at In affordable housing news, the House Committee on Financial Services held a hearing this past Thursday on the future of housing in America. Witnesses called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit critical to making affordable housing financially feasible. Among other suggestions, they recommended expanding funding for the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program and establishing minimum rates for the 9% and 4% credits. The hearing was called The Future of Housing in America, Increasing Private Sector Participation in Affordable Housing. You can read the testimonies of those present at the hearing at www.taxcredithousing.com. Next, I'd like to answer a question that was sent in by one of our listeners, John. John asked, what are others saying about the January 30th release memo from HUD that, among other matters, concerned allowing the bridging of equity outside the operating partnership? Well, that's a great question, John. That's an issue that's affected many participants in the affordable housing community. But first, let me give a little background. In January, HUD issued a memo saying that if Long-term Housing tax equity is funded by a bridge loan, The borrower must be the project sponsor or an upper-tier entity. In other words, the borrower can't be the owner itself. So getting back to your question, John, how are people responding to this guidance? Stakeholders have voiced their concerns to HUD. First of all, some banks' internal credit policies do not allow lending to entities that are not the owner of the real estate. So for equity bridge loans, the borrowing sponsor entity would not be the owner of the real estate. A second issue is collateral. The equity bridge loan is not secured by any FHA loan collateral. In other words, there's no common collateral between the equity bridge loan and the FHA insured loan. And finally, an upper-tier entity as the borrower is either not applicable or not allowed in the cases of many funds. With that said, stakeholders have advised HUD, that direct purchasers or syndicators of the Loan compensation Tax Credit must have the FHA mortgager be the equity bridge loan borrower. In the past, HUD approved waivers so that the equity provider could provide a loan to the owner. Currently, though, HUD is only considering waivers on a case-by-case basis, and that's only for deals that were submitted before January 30th. If waivers are not granted again, or if HUD does not change its policy, some banks said they would not be able to provide equity for FHA-insured transactions. Ultimately, this loss of equity would mean fewer affordable housing units would get built or rehabilitated. Fortunately, I do have some potential good news. There's a chance the policy may change through a revised Multifamily Accelerator Processing, or MAP, guide that is expected to come out this year, possibly around Labor Day. However, that has not yet been finalized, so we don't know for sure. What we do know is that the policy will likely not be reversed or changed before the new map guide is released hud is accepting comments on a draft of the map guide until thursday april 30th for more information about this issue please contact my partner susan wilson and our austin texas office she can be reached at 512-340-0420 and thanks again for the question john and to all our listeners if you have any questions you'd like addressed in an upcoming Task Tuesday podcast, please submit them by going to www.novaco.com slash podcast. Then on the left-hand side of the page, click on Suggest a Podcast Topic. I look forward to hearing from you. Let's move on now to state-level news. The California Housing Finance Agency, or CalHFA, this month introduced a new bond program. The California Conduit Issue Program, Helps affordable housing developers access tax-exempt and taxable bond funds. Developers can then use the funds to acquire, rehabilitate, and develop existing or new construction affordable housing throughout California. The conduit program does have an affordability requirement, and there are two options. First, the 20% option, where 20% of the development units must be rent restricted and occupied by individuals earning 50% or less of their immediate income, or, second, the 40% option, where 40% or more of the units must be both rent-restricted and occupied by individuals earning 60% or less of the AMI. Furthermore, under the second option, state law requires that at least 10% of the units must be reserved for residents earning at or below 50% of the AMI. The program is available to both for-profit and non-profit developers, and non-profit developers will receive discounts of the issuance fees for loans totaling $20 million or more. There are three types of bonds available under the Conduit Issuer Program, tax-exempt bonds, taxable bonds, and tax-exempt 501c3 bonds. The Conduit Program does have a few affordability requirements. First, 20% of a development units must be rent-restricted and occupied by individuals earning 50% or less of the Area Median Income, or AMI. Second, 40% or more of the units must be both rent-restricted and occupied by individuals earning 60% or less of the AMI. Furthermore, state law requires that at least 10% of these units be reserved for residents earning at or below 50% of the AMI. The program went into effect March 2nd. To learn more about the Conduit Program or to print out an application, go to www.calhfa.ca.gov. In new market tax credit news, legislation to permanently extend the federal new market tax credit is gaining momentum in Congress. I'm talking about two companion bills that I've discussed in previous podcasts. They were introduced in the House and Senate in February. If the new market tax credit program is not reauthorized, it will expire after this 2014 allocation round. Technically, it expired during the last year, and this upcoming round is the last authorized funding round. In addition to making the program permanent, the bills would also set an annual inflation adjustment for the allocation amount. And furthermore, they would allow new market tax credits to be claimed against the Alternative Minimum Tax, or AMT. These changes would ultimately mean more money for community development. Since our last update, two new co-sponsors have signed on in support of the House bill. Representative James McGovern, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Representative Cedric Richmond, a Democrat from Louisiana. This brings the total number of co-sponsors for the House bill to 40. That's at the time of this recording. There are 26 Democratic co-sponsors and 14 Republican co-sponsors. Meanwhile, the Senate bill has 6 co-sponsors. To read more about the New Market Tax Credit Extension Act of 2015, go to www.newmarketscredits.com. The House bill is HR 855 and the Senate version is S 591. In our historic tax credit section, I have news about a recent court decision that should remind listeners about the importance of place and service dates. The case involves a Rhode Island developer who applied for the state historic tax credit, but initially wasn't awarded credits. Credits became available to the project later on, but this wasn't until after construction on the project began and after the certificate of occupancy was issued. So the taxpayer lost state of store tax credits because the project received a Certificate of Occupancy before the credits became available. That's despite the taxpayer arguing that the building wasn't completely habitable until nearly six months after the receiving the Certificate of Occupancy. That did happen to be one day before the Tax Credits became available. The hearing officer ruled that the Certificate of Occupancy is the only evidence needed to determine when a project is placed in service. The date that tenants move in does not constitute the project's place-in-service date. While this decision concerned the Rhode Island Historic Tax Credit, developers of any Historic Tax Credit properties should be careful about when they place their properties into service. The price for not paying close enough attention could be costly. If you have any questions about either the federal or your state's Historic Tax Credit, call my partner Tom Bosch in our Cleveland office at 216-298-9000. Tom can give you advice about the importance of the place and service date for both your federal and your state historic tax credits. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, last week the Internal Revenue Service updated its reference rates and inflation adjustment factors for the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit. For calendar year 2015, the production tax credit reference rate for wind facilities is 4.5 cents per kilowatt hour. This is down from 4.85 cents per kilowatt hour in 2014. Now, it's true that this lower reference rate does affect the economics of a transaction, but I don't expect it to prevent large wind farm transactions from moving forward. What I mean is that an owner may be more likely to elect the investment tax credit in lieu of the production tax credit, but the wind farm would most likely get built nonetheless. In terms of the inflation factor, it's 1.5336 for wind, and that's an increase from last year's adjustment factor of 1.5063. To learn more, go to www.energytaxcredits.com. Now, questions about applying the new rate can be directed to my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. In other news, the bill to extend the New Mexico State Investment Tax Credit failed to get the governor's signature, and was pocket-vetoed. The current state investment tax credit expires in 2016, but the legislation would have extended the program through the year 2024. The bill would have gradually phased down the state ITC from 10% to 5% of qualified expenses. Governor Susanna Martinez had 20 days after the legislature ended its session to sign the bill, and she didn't. So on April 10th, it suffered a pocket veto and will not become law. While we're on the subject, there was another New Mexico energy bill that failed to become law. This one was designed to extend and expand the state's production tax credit. It didn't get out of the House Ways and Means Committee before the legislature adjourned, so it died there. Supporters promoted that bill because the state production tax credit is already maxed out, although there's no sunset date. New Mexico renewable energy supporters have vowed to continue pushing for expansion and renewal of the state's energy tax credits. For more information on financing renewable energy, contact my partner Tony Grapponi in our Boston office at 617-330-1920. In other state news, there are now five bills in the North Carolina Legislature to extend the state's renewable energy tax credit. North Carolina's 35% energy credit is set to expire at the end of 2015. Three of the five bills were introduced in the House and Senate recently. They would extend the credit through the end of 2020 and the credit would no longer be available to photovoltaic systems that are one megawatt or larger starting in 2018. The fourth bill passed the Senate and is under consideration by the House. It would extend the credit for one year if the taxpayer meets several requirements. The bill would also require taxpayers to certify next year that certain percentages of the cost and construction have already been incurred. The fifth bill which was introduced in March, extends the tax credit until the end of 2019. That bill is in a Senate committee. So while the North Carolina Renewable Energy Credit will expire in just more than eight months, there is plenty of activity and plenty of bills to extend it. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratz. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogradic and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.